You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Not sure what your plans are for the next year, but these four people are set. One of the big concerns we have about Mars missions is how do you pick the crew? And it is a challenging thing to find not only people that have the fortitude to do this kind of mission in and of themselves, but also to work with each other and to work with people that they may not know very well. For one year, beginning in June 2023, four people will be living in a prototype Martian habitat meant to simulate living on Mars. That means suiting up and enduring the physical and mental challenges of isolation. This unique experiment is designed to help us prepare for the challenges of a real human mission to the Red Planet. How well can we replicate Mars on Earth, and what might we learn from doing so? This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, an update on the human and robot missions to Mars and why the Red Planet has an enduring and endearing hold on us. It's almost, as our episode title suggests as if we were made for Mars. Here's your mission, should you choose to accept it. Shack up with three strangers in a tiny four-bedroom habitat in a warehouse in Texas. You have all the basic requirements for life, and your cohabitants won't be strangers for long. None of you will leave this cozy space for a year. Not an easy assignment, perhaps, but your participation will bring us closer to sending humans to Mars. The warehouse is at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. It's a 1,700-square-foot space. It's got uh, a living area with a kitchen, an area where they can watch movies, an area where they can hold meetings. There's an exercise area. There's a science area. The whole thing is a science area, really. NASA has built a habitat to simulate what it would be like to be camped out on Mars. In this habitat, as will be the case on Mars one day, the participants' health will be carefully monitored. My name is Scott Smith. I'm the lead nutritionist and lead for the Nutritional Biochemistry Lab here at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston. And how could a Mars analog be complete without that distinctive Martian soil? Just outside the door of the habitat is a 1,200-square-foot sandbox filled with red sand. I believe they used iron oxide to add the red color. So it is a, it's a deep red um, sand to simulate Mars that the crews will work in. They'll do Mars walks, if you will, and 
There's a treadmill out there that they may need to do extended journeys on, or there may be things out in the sand they need to find looking for rocks as we would on, uh, on a real Martian mission. The Mars habitat is called CHAPIA, which stands for Crew, Health, and Performance Exploration Analog, and it is now occupied. NASA found those four volunteers, and their 365-day countdown began when the doors closed in June 2023. Simulating living on Mars is clearly a good idea. After all, if it were the real Mars, you'd be at least 30 million miles from home, and help would take seven months to reach you. What might NASA learn from this experiment? Scott Smith gives us a tour of these Red Planet digs. The habitat is just incredible. Um, They 3D printed it out of cement. The cement that they printed the building with was also tinged red to give it a Martian feel. And one of the potential plans uh, for an ultimate either lunar habitat or a moon habitat is that you could 3D print it out of the terrain. You're talking about using cement to 3D print an entire habitat. To me, it looked like icing on a cake where you would, you'd squirted one row at a time and stacked it up. So it, it looks a little bit like, like it's made out of clay or made out of, uh, made out of uh, icing, if you will. And we should say that these are volunteers and they're not astronauts. So they don't have the formal training um, <laughs> to prepare them for life off of Earth. Uh, is that a challenge to bring in civilians, if you will? Well, one of the big concerns we have about Mars missions is that same question of how do you pick the crew? And it is a challenging thing to find not only people that have the fortitude to do this kind of mission in and of themselves, but also to work with each other and to work with people that they may not know very well. Um, The selection process was intense. Um, There were a lot of applications. There was a long interview process, not unlike the way we select astronauts. Well, Scott, then in what ways will this experiment not be like living on Mars that you just can't simulate and we might not be able to simulate, that we'll have to wait until the astronauts go to the planet? The two biggest challenges uh, that we cannot simulate are the, the gravitational field in two ways. One is that the crew will be weightless on the way to Mars, which at this point we think will take about six months. They'll be at a third G while on Mars and then they'll be waitless for, again, about six months coming home. Um, and we, we can't simulate microgravity to that extent. Uh, the other is radiation. In space, the radiation profile is much higher than on Earth. It's higher in low Earth orbit. Um, it's even greater than that as you, as you move away from Earth and get away from the, the magnetic fields here uh, that help protect us. So uh, radiation profile on a Mars mission is a significant concern. And that's obviously one of the areas that we couldn't simulate here. And to what degree will this be a self-contained system? You know, I'm thinking of the biosphere experiment from 30 years ago that simulated life in a space colony, and it was intended to be self-sustaining. All food was produced under the dome, for example, and you also have an area to grow crops. To what degree is the Chapia experiment truly self-contained? Our intent is for, is for the crew to be entirely self-contained and autonomous. There is a mission control that they will have the ability to talk to, although very early on there will be communication delays such as there would be on a Mars mission. So communication will turn into email and that'll be it. There'll be no real-time communication. Could you have email on Mars? You could have email, but when you send your email from Mars, the person you send it to won't get it for about 22 minutes. And if they can respond immediately, it's 22 minutes for you to get the answer. 
but to that end, the crew will be will be isolated, and that is one of the challenges of of this mission. Their supplies will be limited, their food will be limited, and they one of the tasks they will need to do is to regulate their usage of those supplies so that they don't, for example, overeat um, and run out of food in the last month. They do have a hydroponic garden set up. One of the tasks they'll need to achieve is growing what we call pick-and-eat crops, things like lettuce and tomatoes. But those will really be augmenting the nominal food system. So you might get to eat a couple of tomatoes a month or a few pieces of lettuce, but in terms of actual sustenance, we're not at the point where we will expect them to be able to grow enough food to to thrive. Well, Scott, you are a nutritionist, so you will be paying keen interest to what the volunteers are eating. What are some of the things you'll be looking for or that you might be concerned about uh, while they spend this year in isolation? The monitoring that, that we're planning really matches very well what we've done on space station and to a degree matches what we would do on a Mars mission. That is, we will track dietary intake. We have a, a questionnaire set up that the crews can record literally everything that they eat pretty simply. Once a month, we'll collect blood samples and urine samples that we will ultimately analyze to look at biochemical markers of nutritional status. We'll also look at bone health, we'll look at kidney stone risk, we'll look at oxidative stress. In situations like this, a key element is making sure the crews eat enough. Maintaining your body mass is important and not eating enough, losing weight um, means you're losing muscle, you're losing bone, all the things that we don't want to happen. And I wonder to what degree you are prepared for the unexpected. Of course, NASA is always prepared for the unexpected, and it's unexpected by definition. You don't know what it'll be. But if I use biosphere as an example again, after a few months inside that dome, the oxygen levels fell, and so outside oxygen had to be brought in. It was quite disappointing at the time, and it was considered a failure, but actually it taught us about the challenges of creating a balanced ecological system. And do you have sort of categories where you might find something really goes awry and you'll have to scramble with a plan B? As you mentioned, NASA is very good at planning for contingencies. And we have, some, we have some pretty tortured people that spend their time thinking about what could go wrong so that if, if some of those things do happen, we've got a defined response of what do we do? The people that were planning Chapia talked with people that have done other analogs People that have done other chamber studies with flight crew. They've talked with people that have done things like bed rest studies, which is another analog. People that have done Antarctic missions and looked at all the known anomalies, if you will, um, and looked at those and said, okay, what are we going to do here? That would include coming up with those conditions under which you would break that seal and actually deliver more supplies or medical care. So that would be the last resort. Indeed. We, we really, we hope not to do that, but reality breaks in occasionally and, and uh, we'll deal with it as it comes. Just a clarifying question. When you say bed rest, you mean bed rest. You study people who have had to be inert for a significant period of time to find out what reduction in exercise does to the body? When we want to look at things like bone loss and muscle loss and even changes in, in eyes, what we have found is that if you put people to bed for extended periods of time, 30, 60, 90 days, that you can simulate the effects of spaceflight. That is, you're not using your muscles the same way, you're not using your bones the same way. The fluid shift is like spaceflight. That is, it 
the fluid leaves your legs and goes up into your head um, and increases the pressure there. It's not a perfect model of what happens during spaceflight, but it is a model and we can do that to study how to counteract those changes in ways that we can't do it in spaceflight. Then we always test things on the ground before we fly them so that we have a much better idea that they're gonna work uh, before we try with, with the astronauts. Well, finally, Scott, what do you hope the big picture data that emerges looks like? Or what's the central question that you hope at the end of a year you can say, ah, now we have a better sense of this. And, and, and what, what is that? Chapia represents a great analog in that it's an integrated look at essentially a one-year simulated Mars mission and will give us a very good look at whether or not the food system we have can sustain health over that period of time, whether or not the behavior and performance challenges that you would expect in this type of environment can be overcome, and, and will really help either clarify the questions that we still need to answer in terms of trying to, to fill knowledge gaps to get us ready to go to Mars for real, or confirm that, that these are the elements where it works and we're ready to go. And from my perspective, again, can we use the space food system that we have now to maintain crew health over a truly extended period of time in a realistic Mars-type mission? Well, the best of luck to you. We're excited to follow along. Scott Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's NASA's Scott Smith, who leads the nutritional biochemistry efforts at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, talking about the ultimate getaway, the Chapia Project, meant to simulate life on Mars. You know, Molly, sometimes the most impressive thing about an endeavor is the attention paid to details. Dr. Smith noted that they would train using an introduced communication delay. <laughs> you know, I think I would like that with my own emails, <laughs> where there wasn't just no pressure to respond right away. <laughs> well, well, I, I've kind of adopted that. Anyhow, I've introduced my own communication delay. <laughs> You know, Seth, Dr. Smith said that they can't or they won't simulate the high levels of radiation that we find on Mars, of course. But recent research suggests that radiation exposure might be the limiting factor in putting people on Mars. After I talked to Scott, a study was published by scientists at UCLA that was looking into the viability of living on the red planet. And it found, the scientists found, that a mission to Mars would be limited to, do you want to guess how long? Well, I would guess six months, but I don't really know. Oh, well, a bit longer than that. That, that a mission to Mars, they found, would be limited to four years because any longer than that, the cumulative exposure to radiation becomes too much. Were you thinking about radiation as being a limiting factor when you said six months? I was, because honestly, you know, I, I, I remember hearing somebody talk about this. They said, you know, you, you take a rocket to Mars, it takes you six or seven months to get there, and you're going to get a lot of exposure to radiation just during that trip. Because, you know, they can't line the rocket with lead. <laughs> you, you wouldn't ever get it off the ground. So, yeah, that's a real problem. I mean, people have to be willing to, you know, just accept that they're going to get uh, radiation exposure. Of course, we could avoid the whole problem by using robots, and we'll get an overview of new robotic missions to Mars later in the show. But first, why can't we quit this rusty, dusty planet? Humans have been fascinated by Mars for a very long time, but for different times and different places, 
Mars meant very different things to them. I'm about to leave for the Scaparelli crater where I'm going to commandeer the Ares IV lander. Nobody explicitly gave me permission to do this, and they can't until I'm on board the Ares IV. So that means I'm going to be taking a craft over in international waters without permission, which by definition makes me a pirate. Mark Watney, space pirate. This episode of Big Picture Science is made for Mars. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. As NASA runs simulations to prepare us for going to Mars, we might ask where future astronauts would live. One intriguing patch of real estate is tied to Mars' volcanic past. One of the most promising uh, places where people are looking at you know, potential homes for the future in Mars is uh, inside of the lava tubes created by those um, volcanoes. So who knows? You know, Maybe we'll end up living in these lava tubes at some point. Imagine living in a lava tube on Mars. This exotic geology is a spur to our fascination with this planet, an interest that has endured for centuries. I'm Matthew Schindel. I'm a historian of science, and I'm the curator of planetary science and exploration at the National Air and Space Museum. And I'm also the author of For the Love of Mars, A Human History of the Red Planet. He says he wanted to explore how our scientific interest and enchantment with Mars are intertwined. Part of the reason that I wrote this book was because, you know, humans have been fascinated by Mars for a very long time. But for, you know, different times and different places, Mars meant very different things to them, whether that's medieval ideas about Mars and astrology, which is literally about predicting the future, or today, as we talk about, you know, potentially making our future on Mars and making Mars a part of humanity. Dr. Schindel gives us a few reasons why the Red Planet has always intrigued us. It's really difficult to get into the minds of people who lived hundreds of years ago, but you know we know from our own observations of Mars and what we can see with our naked eye that Mars is one of the most interesting objects in the sky in the way that it's able not only you know to move in the same ways as the other planets do, but to have a very recognizable, noticeable uh, retrograde motion. And then also during oppositions, the way that 
you know, oppositions can look different from one to another with Mars sometimes being brighter, sometimes being a different hue of red or or wheatish color. So I think it has to do with just the, the fact that if you observe Mars long enough, you see it do some strange things. Well, when you talk about oppositions, this isn't the kind of opposition that you're favorite football club might have. You know, yeah. Opposition just means that Mars is in a position in its orbit, vis-a-vis our orbit, that it, you know, it looks brighter than, it's, it's closer than it normally is, right? Yeah, exactly. It's when, you know, the Earth, Mars, and the Sun all line up in a line, right? So it's when we have our, our best viewing opportunities of Mars. And yet, Matt, Venus has traditionally been described as Earth's sister planet. How is it that Mars stole Venus's thunder? I mean, why is it Venus the object of everybody's attention? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a point of contention for some of the Venus scientists out there. But, you know, I think it really has to do with that moment, really in the 20th century, uh, when people started to recognize that Venus was very Earth-like, but that in many ways it was very hostile and inhospitable due to high temperatures and thick atmosphere. And then when we got to see a little bit closer with spacecraft, just what that atmosphere was made up of, uh, it really started to lose its place of favor in our our minds. And Mars, on the other hand, when we sent spacecraft there, uh, had very recognizable terrestrial, you know, landmarks. It had volcanoes, it had gullies, it had all of these other things that we associate with life on Earth. So even though, you know, most of Mars looked to us like, you know, say the the Mojave Desert or or somewhere like that, it, it still looked a lot more habitable than this incredibly hot, sweltering planet of Venus. That's why we've spent now you know, a couple of decades roving around on the surface of Mars and exploring it because, you know, it's it's a planet you can see from orbit and it's also a planet that you can send spacecraft to and actually have them survive for, you know, 10 years or more. You know, I've lived in Europe where the term Martian referred to any extraterrestrials. All aliens were called Martians. Um, you know, when did people start speaking about Martians? I, I don't know that they speak so much about Venusians. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because if you go back to the Enlightenment, right, that's really the period when people started thinking that all of the planets could potentially be inhabited. And there were all kinds of stories told about, um, you know, what life on the different planets were like. But once you get into like the late 19th century, I think that's where Mars really starts to take over in terms of that being the planet where, you know, life was most often talked about. And I think we can kind of give a lot of credit to folks like Schiaparelli and Percival Lowell, who put forward the idea that Mars was incredibly Earth-like with potentially a, a channel system or a canal system, and in Lowell's case, you know, intelligent creatures. And so when that got into the public mind, and especially after H.G. Wells had written his War of the Worlds, I think that's really when Mars became the place that we thought of as housing our extraterrestrial other. You know, that brings to mind the period just before the Viking landers, I guess this was the 1970s, made it onto the surface of Mars, and people, including Carl Sagan, uh, were talking about what it was likely to reveal when the camera shutters finally opened on the surface of Mars, and they figured at least there would be plants. Maybe not little green guys walking around, but there'd be plants. I mean, we were very optimistic about life on Mars right up until the mid-20th century, even later. 
Yeah, it's very true. I mean, when Mariner 4 went to uh, fly by Mars, a lot of people expected that you might at least see some form of life, like something simple like lichens, which we know can grow at very high altitudes and, uh, you know, low atmospheric pressure here on Earth. And so, you know, people kind of thought that those might be responsible for the kind of albedo changes that they had observed on Mars for years. Now, we know now that those albedo changes, a lot of them were due to dust storms and other things happening on the surface and just the circulation of dust. But, you know, at the time in the 1960s and then 70s, there was still a lot of hope that we would find some kind of simple life. Now, I think we've pushed that back first to microbial life and now maybe to microbial life sometime in the past. So the story of life on Mars has definitely, you know, continued to be pushed either to smaller animals or to, uh, you know, further back in the past. There's still hope, right? There's still hope that Mars was once inhabited or at least habitable. Maybe you should describe for the people who haven't been to Mars, that's <laughs> some, some fairly sizable fraction of the audience, you know, what they would see if they hitched a ride with the Viking uh, spacecraft and landed on Mars this weekend. Uh, you'd have to dress appropriately. But, you know, what would you actually see? What does it look like? I mean, you'd see a lot of volcanic rock, right? That's essentially what characterizes a lot of the Martian surface is different forms of basalt and then basalt that's been weathered over long periods of time and that has turned into dust and, and sand, although, you know, calling it sand is probably a little generous because I think the particle size tends to be pretty small. So, you know, it's it looks a lot, at least to your eyes, it looks a lot like the deserts of, of the Earth. And it does have that very characteristic reddish tint to it as well. And, and that's due to? Yeah, it has to do with the iron in the soil that's been oxidized over many years. So Mars is kind of a rusty as well as a dusty world. Yeah, rusty and dusty, and if you want to think of it this way, it's almost like a talcum powdery uh, consistency from what we can tell from the robotic uh, missions. So were you disappointed? I mean, you know, you were around when the Viking landers first opened up their shutters and showed us what Mars was like, and, you know, you just see sort of this, I don't know, not featureless. There were rocks everywhere and some hills, but, you know, there wasn't much, and there was certainly no trees and no yeah. obvious, you know, fungi or anything like that on Mars? Well, I was around, but I was only a few months old. So um, I was born in 1976, the same year that the Vikings landed on Mars. And I feel kind of connected to Mars, partly for that reason, um, that, you know, my life has kind of been in the same sort of time frame as our first sort of surface missions to Mars. But uh, yeah, you know, what, what Vikings showed us was not incredibly dynamic from the standards of what we're used to on Earth. But at the same time, you know, there was a lot of disappointment in the 1960s after the first Mariner missions, where folks thought, ah, oh, Mars is going to be boring. It's just going to be like the moon. It's just this heavily cratered surface. But as we explored it more with the later Mariner missions and then with Viking, which in addition to the landers had two incredible orbiters as well that did incredible photographic mapping of the planets, we started to see that Mars was dynamic as well, just in a different way from the Earth, right? That it actually had an interesting geologic past that was unique to it, that it wasn't the moon and it wasn't Earth, it was its own thing. And, you know, we've spent decades since then trying to unlock that history of Mars and trying to see 
you know, what actually characterized the changes that happened on that planet that gave us the Mars that we are able to explore today. And, you know, it's this wonderful story of, you know, well, I'll put it this way. I think that Mars remains interesting today, even though we haven't found life on that planet, because it tells us something about another path that our planet could potentially have taken, right? That Mars started out a lot like Earth, at least if, according to the uh, most up-to-date scientific models of what its past might have been like. It was warm, it was wet, it was possibly a great place for life to start, but, you know, because of its size, the core uh, stopped spinning early, it lost its magnetic field, it lost its atmosphere, it cooled down dramatically, and became this cold desert world. And, you know, so by looking at Mars, we see what can happen to a planet like ours if the conditions aren't, you know, just right to keep things going. So so the biggest discriminant between Earth and Mars, the thing that made Mars go bad, and so far hasn't happened on the Earth, is simply that Mars was puny, was just smaller, yeah. right? Is yeah, it? It, it lost its heat early on, and it never got to start, you know, this, this dynamic plate tectonic system that we have that recycles the surface of the planet and in many ways keeps the planet habitable. Mars never got that. It cooled down faster, the, the core stopped spinning, and it just lost that. What we can tell from looking at the surface is that, you know, the volcanoes that are there have been in the same places for a long time. They've erupted, they've, you know, changed the surface of the planet through eruptions, but that's, that's kind of about it in terms of the geologic uh, dynamism. So, Matt, uh, you know, is Mars somehow a view into the crystal ball of where Earth could head? I mean, eventually Earth's core is going to get cooler too and you know a lot of this activity will go away i mean it's possible you know and it's it's interesting because back in the 19th century we were talking about percival lowell a little earlier you know one of the reasons lowell was fascinated with mars was because he thought that looking at mars and this incredible canal buildings uh, race that he saw there was looking into the future of earth that Earth was going to eventually become a desert planet just like Mars, and that what we saw on Earth when we saw deserts in the world was not just, you know, here are the discrete deserts that exist uh, on Earth, but these are the deserts that are going to grow over time and eventually take over the entire Earth. He said this, the frightening thing isn't that deserts are, it's that they are beginning to be. Um, so, you know, it is, it is, of course, possible that sometime in our future, uh, or maybe not our future, but the planet's future, that it will cool down and it will go a little bit more the way of, of Mars. But uh, I know you and I won't be around to see that. Yeah. I'm somewhat sorry about that. I'd sort of like <laughs> to see it happen. Doesn't happen. We'll eventually be eaten by the sun, right? So yeah. we're going to end one way or another. Mars doesn't have liquid water on its surface now, it seems, but there's a lot of water there. I mean, it's just all ice in the ground, right? So couldn't we just throw a lot of greenhouse gases onto Mars, you know, maybe manufacture them there and melt some of that ice and, you know, bring oceans back to Mars? You know, I, you, you could do that. I mean, it obviously wouldn't be easy. But uh, your problem after that would be without a, a magnetic field, there's nothing to hold that atmosphere in, it's going to get stripped away by, uh, you know, solar radiation, by the solar wind. So, you know, unless you can come up with a, a good uh, field generator, essentially, and then create the atmosphere, it's not going to stick around. It sounds like terraforming Mars is not so easy. 
No, I don't think it will be if if we ever do get around to it. Um, I have a little bit more uh, optimism about the idea of creating sort of uh, habitats and and maybe small. I don't know. I don't want to use the word domed, but it's the best word like domed cities on Mars that that can be kind of self-contained. Did you see the Martian? Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Who hasn't? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it gave you some idea of what Mars might look like. Kind of looks like Jordan. But I mean, really, it, it, it was that. Well, finally then, Matt, would you go to Mars? At the moment, no, you know, (laughs) I don't want to be one of the first people to set foot on Mars. If I could be transported there, you know, like if we had transporter technology and I could go and take a look and then come home, sure. But, you know, if you sign on to a mission to Mars, you're signing on to multiple years, uh, including a lot of time traveling to Mars and back and then, you know, time on the planet waiting for the next favorable uh, you know, orbital alignment so that you can start to come home. So I'm not really interested in a long duration Mars voyage, but uh, if they ever set up a hotel nearby, like on the moon, I might pop up there. Matthew Schindel, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's historian Matthew Schindel. He is the curator of planetary science and exploration at the National Air and Space Museum. And he is the author of For the Love of Mars, A Human History of the Red Planet. Well, our Mars buzz continues. Next, a new robotic mission aims to be the first to bring back a piece of the red planet. This episode of Big Picture Science is made for Mars. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. An answer to the tantalizing question of whether Mars has life or had life in the past may be getting closer. It's one thing to study rocks on Mars, but it's quite another to have samples from the red planet to test in a lab on Earth. And soon the Perseverance rover and the Ingenuity helicopter may have company because a mission scheduled for launch in 2027 intends to deliver new hardware to Mars to deliver those rocks back to scientists. NASA's Mars Sample Return mission is the first proposed mission to collect Martian rocks and dust and bring them back to Earth. It also includes the first rocket launch from the Martian surface. Hello, my name is Pascal Lee. I'm a planetary scientist with the SETI Institute, and I'm the director of the NASA Halton Mars Project, which is a planetary analog field research project in the Arctic. 
My name is Michela Muñoz Fernandez. Uh, I am a program executive for Mars Sample Return at NASA headquarters. Two scientists join us to talk about the Mars Sample Return mission and another forward-looking project here on Earth, the Houghton Mars Project, and how these missions complement each other to bring us a little closer to Mars. Yeah, so the Mars Sample Return program consists of a sample retrieval lander that will join uh, Perseverance in or close to Jezero Crater and will carry a Mars ascent vehicle, which is basically the first rocket that will ever be launched from Mars. And also, I will have a sample transfer arm and uh, two helicopters. The Mars Sample Return mission will be the first time that we will be bringing back samples from Mars. And we hope to learn a lot about what Mars's past was like, whether or not the planet had life. So yeah, we, we're going to launch uh, the Mars Ascent Vehicle, which is a two-stage rocket. Uh, this is necessary in order to basically place the samples that were collected by Perseverance to place them in orbit, on, on Martian orbit, and then uh, perform the rendezvous with the European uh, return orbiter that will finally carry those samples back to Earth. And it's definitely the next step we need to do in order to better understand Mars, its history and evolution that will also help us understand Earth. But I think just bringing the samples from Mars, those rocks and regolith, especially the rocks, will carry the history of the planet. Let me ask you a little about the mechanics. Samples collected by Mars Perseverance rover, those are the samples you're going to try and bring back, right? And they would be retrieved. Presumably they've all been cached in a, a central location, but we're going to send up a spacecraft there that doesn't dig up the samples, it just acts as a, the mailman and brings these back to Earth, right? Uh, well, let me say, it's true that Perseverance has already connected an initial depot of 10 samples, which is fantastic. The primary path to bring the samples is directly from Perseverance, uh, you know, with the sample transfer arm to the sample retrieval lander. And so that's the primary path. But if for some reason Perseverance uh, dies before we get there, then we will have this depot on the surface of Mars, and then these two helicopters will be able to retrieve the samples and then place them closer to SRL so that the sample transfer arm is able to place them in this orbiting sample container that is on top of the, of the rocket. And I would say that these uh, helicopters are, are really cool because uh, they are an improved version of Ingenuity that is already operating on Mars and that was carried by Perseverance. And so these helicopters uh, will have uh, wheels uh, because they will need this mobility uh, to be able to get closer to the lander. Pascal, do we really need a sample return mission with all its complexity? Couldn't we just do the analysis of these rocks in situ, in other words, on Mars itself? Well, we do need samples back from Mars, and a sample return mission has the merit that it's one of the important stepping stones to eventually getting humans to go to Mars, because we will have to bring humans back. And so any experience we can gain in that process, in my view, is, is, a, is a very positive step. And I think that we will indeed learn important things about the past environment of Mars. Uh, we'll also be able to maybe date these rocks, which will be really important. Uh, it's something that we cannot do right now, and, except by just looking at how cratered the landscape is, but that's fraught with uncertainty. So having rock samples that we can actually run through a machinery that, you know, that can do geochronology, um, date the rocks and understanding 
when was this environment wet and warmer at the surface would be will be a very important thing. Pascal, you're involved with the Houghton Mars Project. Tell us what that is. Well, the Houghton Mars Project is a planetary analog field research project. We go up to the Arctic every summer to one of the most Mars-like places on our planet, Devon Island. And there we are learning about the geology and biology of the place to understand Mars by comparison. Uh, Mars looks incredibly like Devon Island. Yeah, or, or the reverse. I mean, is, is Devon Island really a good analog for Mars? I mean, if I think about going to Mars, I think of going to a place where I can't breathe the atmosphere, which is incredibly cold and, of course, kind of barren. Exactly. So, so you know, every analog uh, has its limits. And there are some aspects that are high in fidelity and others that are not. There's no place on Earth that has Martian gravity. There's no place on Earth that actually has, you know, the radiation environment at the surface that Mars has. So, so we do with what we have. And on the other hand, if we're studying things like uh, geology, uh, some aspects uh, could be very relevant. Studying the place on Devon Island is one of the things that the Houghton Mars Project does. The other is to, we're using the site as a testing and training location. So testing because we're testing hardware for future Mars exploration. We're testing rovers, Mars airplanes, uh, spacesuits this summer. We're testing two new spacesuits this summer that eventually would work on Mars. How would you compare this with the Mars sample return mission? I think Mars sample return mission represents the conclusion of a phase of exploration on Mars, which is the exploration of its surface, of its very surface, and where we're trying to assess one last time whether or not the surface of Mars really has signatures of life in it or anything that looked like it was, you know, got close to that. At the same time, the mission marks the beginning of a new phase, which is preparing uh, humans going to Mars and their return from Mars eventually. And this is where the Health Mars Project is really complementary to the Mars Sample Return campaign. Michelle, what about the fact that, you know, we really don't have a good definition of life. So is there any, any reasonable probability that we could be fooled by, you know, the data that we get back from Mars here? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would say that we don't have a good definition of life. I think we have a good definition of life as we know it on Earth. And it's reasonable to, to try to find similar life to Earth because that's what we know. And that's why we've been following the water because we think if there is water, there is a potential for, for life forms. But at the same time, we have to think out of the box and we have to, to basically imagine that there could be some kind of life form that doesn't have the same ingredients that uh, we know here on Earth. And so maybe in our search for biosignatures, it's true that maybe we don't see anything that we recognize, but that doesn't mean that it's not a life form. But I think that by the time we get the samples back in the 2030s, our technology will have improved in a very significant way. And I believe, you know, we see how fast machine learning, artificial intelligence is working to probably identify possible life form. I, I do want to pick up on a very good point that Michelle made, which is that we should be really open-minded and think out of the box in terms of what we might discover as an alien form of life. And uh, the only thing I would say there is that you go into this question first with your experience with what you know, and you look for things that you are likely to recognize 
you know, in terms of their alienness. So, for example, even NASA's strategy, which has always been to follow the water, uh, that actually is an assumption that an alien life form would like water. So we do start with some very important assumptions on what an alien life form might be like. And it's only once we've exhausted the options or, or the, the sense that, okay, we're not going anywhere with this assumption, that we can broaden the, the assumptions on the biochemistry or on what solvent the, the life form might, might use. Will you be, uh, Pascal, will you be disappointed if these missions fail to find any evidence of biology on the red planet? Simplistically, I think that the surface of Mars today is sterile. There, there's no chance for us at this point to find anything that's living. There are some extremophiles that will survive this or that extreme aspect of the Martian surface, including radiation, but not the full combination of all the extreme aspects of the Martian surface, the low pressure, the low cold temperatures, the radiation. If you put all of that together, there's no single extremophile on Earth in Earth's tree of life that would survive on Mars. It could simply be that the surface of Mars is just uh, has rendered biochemistry essentially impossible, Bio- carbon-based biochemistry, but that's, you know, the most chemically easy to implement. So, so what you're saying is when it comes to looking for the Martians, we may just be too late. Well, at the surface, and again, it even, you know, I often argue that if Perseverance is driving along and it comes against a road cut and there are giant bones of some beast sticking out of the road cut, we wouldn't be able to tell for sure that you have actually found alien life. Because alien life, alienness is not based on just morphology. I mean, you look at the morphology and diversity of life on Earth, you know, we would call many things alien. <laughs> uh, you know, if, if we didn't know that they were part of all, all part of the tree of life on Earth, had DNA, used only the same 20, 20 to 22 amino acids. So what we're looking for when we are saying that we want to find alien life on Mars we're looking for a form of life that would not plot onto the genetic tree of life on Earth. And what would define alienness is to find a life form that may or may not use DNA as a structure, first of all. But even if it used DNA as a structure, could be using different bases. That's one thing. And or a life form that uses a different set of amino acids. But in order to do that, that kind of biochemistry, that kind of genetic analysis, you have to find it alive or it has to be, have been dead for not a long time. And so, well, the only way to do that now is to go underground. And in fact, to find it alive and really thriving, you'd have to go that so deep that you'd hit the liquid water table. That is anywhere from two to five kilometers deep down on Mars. So we're not gonna do this anytime soon. The other option is to go into a natural cave because now all of a sudden you have a completely different sheltered environment, shelter from radiation, micrometeorites, stark day-night temperature changes. You are on the warmth of a volcano that might still be active. You have water vapor that's being outgassed. All of a sudden you have a micro environment, an oasis, if you will, for biochemistry. Uh, and and that, in my view, is our greatest chance of finding life that's still living on Mars today. Go to the caves. Hire spelunkers. Well, I don't think we should be expecting to find life in the samples. These are going to be rock samples that date back to the earlier part of the history of Mars. We might find biosignatures or fossil forms of life, but uh, even if we didn't, that would tell us simply that, you know, in this location at that time, uh, life wasn't uh, everywhere. 
Yeah, but but the, the public may just see this as a failure to find life on Mars. No, because well, the public might view this, and this is this is where the science community will have to explain that. You know, you, you could land on the Earth in some location and not find much life, and conclude that the planet is is sterile. Uh, it, this is a start. This is a start, and we'll understand much better the the chemistry of the environment in which these rocks were laid down, and also uh, they might actually contain fossils. Well, finally, Michela, what would it mean to you or to humanity to find life on Mars? If we could confirm that was that there was past life on Mars. That would be very emotional for all of us, especially working on the space program, because I think all of us and also all the humanity is interested in knowing if there are any other life forms in, in the solar system, right? So it's, uh, sometimes I think it's a bit egocentric thinking that we are the only, the only ones living uh, in the solar system and in the universe. So I think it would be wonderful to find other you know, uh, life forms. It would also help us understand, I mean, not only the evolution of, of Mars, also the evolution of Earth. And that's very helpful because now Earth is the way we, it is right now, but we don't know how Earth is going to evolve, right? So I think to understand how a planet went from having life forms to a planet that is uh, basically, we think, a sterile on the, on the surface. And so, uh, so, yeah, that's critical. Any understanding about past life is going to be very important for future life there, right? For our, our future on Mars. Michela Munoz Fernandez, thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was a pleasure to talk to all of you and uh, go Mars sample return. Pascal Lee, thank you so very much for being with us. You're welcome. And I, I really enjoyed uh, hearing about the Mars sample return mission, too. Pascal Lee is a planetary scientist with the SETI Institute and the director of the NASA Houghton Mars Project. Michaela Minos Fernandez is a program executive for Mars Sample Return at NASA headquarters. All right, Seth, the big picture about the red planet. What, what is your takeaway? Well, of course, the really big picture is the fact that we're planning to go to Mars, that we will go to Mars. But these projects that we've discussed in this show, you know, are trying to give us, if you will, uh, a kind of a heads up of what to expect. And that's a little unusual in exploration. I mean, you know, nobody gave the people that were trying to walk to the South Pole, you know, samples of the South Pole that they could look at before they got there. So this is, this is something that's, you know, really unusual, unique, and extremely beneficial, I think. So you're saying it's a new kind of exploration. So instead of just going over that mountain and wondering what you'll find on the other side or going to one of the poles, being one of the first explorers to go to the poles, not knowing what to expect, we are thoroughly preparing ourselves for what to expect on Mars. We are. And of course, part of that is simply the fact that, you know, Mars isn't just going to another place on Earth, right? You, you can sort of guess what you might find on another place on Earth. Uh, when you go to Mars, yeah, we think we know the planet pretty well. But of course, you know, you're talking about uh, actually going there. So it's the, the more information you have in advance, the better, I would say. It sounds like you're saying two things then. One is that we will be really prepared. And the other is we can't prepare for everything. Well, that I think both are true, right? I mean, we, we try to be as prepared as we can, but of course, surprises are always part of the picture when it comes to exploration. And in fact, sometimes the surprises are the best part of the exploration, although you don't want the surprises to be dangerous to the people doing the work. 
speaking of that and surprises, uh, were you surprised to hear that there may be a time limitation on any single person's visit to Mars of four years? And that would preclude living on the planet for a decade or for the rest of your life. I mean, it would be a temporary home. Well, that's true. That's been known for a while, actually, that, uh, you know, if you stand around in a spacesuit on Mars, for example, you have a limited time to live because you're, you're going to get cancer from all the radiation. However, the, the whole point of going to Mars, of course, is largely about answering the question, did this planet ever have life? Maybe it still has life, right? And to answer that question, having people on the surface there is really a good thing because they can do things that the robots can never do. They can follow up on, you know, uh, geological formations that suggest there's some evidence for, for life on the red planet. But, you know, this is a, a, an experiment that you have to do relatively quickly because after about four years, you really have to come back because the cumulative radiation that you've been exposed to there on the Martian surface is getting very dangerous. This show would not be possible without the help of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that searches for life beyond Earth. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show was by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science giving updates about future missions to the Red Planet is Made for Mars. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.